You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show for lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction. Join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley and Darcy Fournier. On this episode, we talk with Stefina H. McGee about her latest release, The Secrets of Ember Wild. Our Pinch of the Past features the historical traditions of birthday celebrations. And for our bookworm review, we're taking a peek at The Hidden Prince by Tessa Afshar. Now for giveaways, our giveaway for A Gem of Truth by Kimberly Woodhouse just finished up. We're just waiting to hear back from the from the winner of that giveaway. And surprisingly, I haven't heard back after sending the email. So if you entered that giveaway, you might want to check your email. <laughs> Other emails that we currently have running are A Daughter's Courage by Misty M. Beller, which ends on October 31st at midnight. The Secrets of Ember Wild by Stefina McKee ends on November 7th. To enter to win, just go to our website, historicalbookworm.com, and you'll find the giveaways page. You can also find links to enter the giveaway in the show notes for this episode. Our guest today is the award-winning author of many stories of faith, hope, and healing set in the Deep South. When she's not reading or sipping sweet tea on the front porch, she's a writer, dreamer, husband spoiler, and busy mom of two rambunctious boys. Stefina H. McGee, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Hi, thank you for having me today. It's great to be here. Well, to start off with something fun, if you were a cartoon character, who do you think you would be? Okay, I'm going to cheat a little bit on this because I'm going to pick somebody I think maybe every book-loving girl would go for. I would be Belle from Beauty and the Beast so that I could live in a castle with a massive library and talking furniture does all the cooking and cleaning for me. Good choice. I like it. <laughs> I love Belle. Uh, yeah, just uh, that library, man. That that would be... Oh, yeah. Yeah, you could just live there. And like you say, the furniture does all the cooking and cleaning, so set. You could spend all day in the library while they're doing all the dusting. Exactly, exactly. Oh, do you like Disney animations in general, or is it just Belle? I do. I remember as a kid, I watched a whole lot of those. I loved Winnie the Pooh, too. But I don't know that I would want to be Winnie the Pooh. No, not quite as fun as as (laughs) Belle, for sure. No, not quite. When did you first realize you wanted to be a writer? I remember that in the first grade... I decided to write a story that was called The Pig in a Wig. And it was about a little pink pig who took a ride on the Mayflower. And the whole thing came from the words from my spelling list. So I think God planted that writer's seed in me from the very beginning. I wrote a lot of little funny stories. Um, I always went to the library and, and brought home sacks of books. And so I think it's always been there. It wasn't until much later that I really discovered my passion for story and that I wanted to craft my own stories. But I think it's always been in there. That's neat. It's cool to look back and see these little hints that you did not recognize at the time, but it's, yes, God had planted the seed and he was watering it. Yeah, my mama still has that story. Oh, wow. That's so sweet. Now, what kind of books were you into when you went to the library? Was it like all kinds or did you gravitate toward a certain section? All of them. I remember I read like Jane Eyre in the fifth grade. And then I read um, the library had the entire House of Winslow series. Do you remember those books? 
I never read those. He did, Gilbert Morse, he did this series where it like started, I think with the Mayflower, and it was a story for each generation all the way through, I don't know, maybe the 1940s or something. But I loved those books and I read every single one of them. Oh, wow. That sounds like a fun way to learn American history and it probably stuck better than a historical textbook. I'm sure it probably did because I had a lot of fun with those. Yeah. I think my favorite books growing up were the Little House on the Prairie books. Oh, yeah. Laura Ingalls Wilder just, she painted the life so well. The way she would go into detail, I've, I loved it. And yeah, the history in it and everything, I really enjoyed that. But yeah, now I want to check out Gilbert Morris's story. I've read a couple by him, but I've never started and followed the whole saga. I feel like that would be a lot of fun. It was really cool. Like, I, I remember being excited to, to go back to the library and get the next one. Yeah. Now, if you weren't a writer, what profession do you think you would pursue? I actually have a degree in animal science with a concentration in equine science. Really? So, yeah, I thought I wanted to go to vet school. Thankfully, I figured out I did not want to go to vet school before I started vet school. And my husband says when I got all the student loans to go to vet school, <laughs> I decided that I, I wanted to be a horse trainer and have a horse farm. And so I started down that path. Turned out that I had some health issues. I've got some problems with my back. And so God was like, no, I think we're going to go with what I planned to begin with. And you're going to work on this writing thing instead. Oh, wow. But you got plenty of experience, which I believe you used in this book. So it'll be fun to get into that. Yeah, I did. It was, I had a lot of experiences I used for that. But I think that if I wasn't a writer, that would probably be what I would go back to doing because I, I do love horses. Yeah, my sister actually loves horses. She currently volunteers at a local farm that rescues horses. Oh, I love that. Yes. She says she just loves being around them, how how peaceful and relaxing it can be, which I suppose when you get into the training, there's probably a little bit more excitement from time to time. <laughs> from time to time, yes. <laughs> well, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Yeah, I've had to think about this. I don't think many people know. I am or I was a big car girl. I spent the entire summer of my sophomore year in my grandfather's shop, completely rebuilding a 302 Boss engine for a Mustang convertible with big side pipes on it. <laughs> so Whoa. I used to be all into the fast cars and the I don't know, all those old muscle cars. I still like to look at them. I don't think I could tell you anything anymore about how to do any kind of engine work, but that was a thing that I did for a while. <laughs> really? I had no idea. But I don't know, cool cars, cool horses, somehow they go together. Um, Maybe it's just fast. Maybe I like going fast. Maybe that's my problem. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But that's cool. Did your grandfather, was he teaching you or... Yeah, he was a mechanic and he was a crew chief on, I think it was B-52s that he used to fly on. And so he, he did all this jet engine work. My mom, when she went into the military, she was a jet engine mechanic for a while. So they were both very inclined people. We discovered that Tools and I aren't really friends. I'm not so great with them, but... I had a really fun time spending that summer just bonding with him and having that project. And it was a lot of fun. 
Absolutely. That is so cool. My granddad grew up on a farm, but he could do all kinds of stuff with those old engines. He loved them. He said he he hated new cars because the engines just got so complex that it was more than he could keep track of. Yeah, they're basically a big computer now. There's not really all the stuff that I'm I was seeing in that in those old cars. Exactly. But I don't know. There's something about those old cars. I think it was one of the Beach Boys actually that said young people today will never get what it was like when in the 60s and 70s and even before when you were working on your own car and he said it it was like your friend. You worked on it, you improved it, you drove it. It was your car. He and they said, "Yeah, it's just not the same these days with cars." Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because you don't have to really tinker with it. You take it to the shop and they plug in a computer and tell you what's wrong with it. Exactly, exactly. But that is so cool. Yeah, talk about hidden talents. She's... (laughs) Or at least strange ones, I don't know. Writers are strange by nature, but anyway. Oh, yes, we are. Yes, we are. It's fine. Anytime I do things and people look at me funny, I just smile at my husband. I'm like, it's it's okay. I'm a writer. People expect me to be weird. It's a free pass. It's beautiful. <laughs> Let's go ahead and dive into talking about your latest release, The Secrets of Ember Wild. And I'll read the back cover copy for our listeners. Nora Finton is a gifted trainer in a time when women are not allowed to race. She prefers horses to men because they are easier to handle and more reliable. But when her father passes away, her family's struggling horse farm is put in jeopardy. To save the farm, Nora decides to enter her prize colt into the 1905 Mississippi and West Alabama Fair. If she wins, she could gain everything she wishes, stability and independence. The only thing standing in her way is a stranger with disconcerting questions and the potential to take what is rightfully hers. Silas Cavallero wants answers to the mysteries surrounding his father's death. To unearth what is hidden, he has to battle Nora's desire for him to disappear, as well as the whims of an unwieldy cult. But there is someone who would rather the truth remain buried. Is learning the secrets of his own past worth risking a future with the woman he's come to admire? This promises well. We've got family feud maybe going on here, and definitely two opposing characters. So this is setting up to be quite a bit of fun, it looks like. Yeah, they clash a little bit. (laughs) Now, your character, Nora Fenton, is a talented horse trainer. And it sounds like you may have chosen this profession because you have a love for it yourself. Yeah, you found me out. (laughs) I was super excited to get this book contracted because it gave me an opportunity to relive some of the things that I had done, some of my adventures in horse training, some of the funny things that my horses would do. And so I had the chance to give my love of horses to one of my characters and it fit well with her. So I thought it'd be neat to have a female trainer and horse races, especially in a historical book. Yeah, I was going to say, what you as a horse trainer today is wouldn't be so strange. And women are horse trainers all the time using all sorts of different methods. But what she would have come up against some significant challenges, I'm imagining, in 1905 pursuing this career. Yeah, especially even simple things like she was supposed to be in a skirt. And Nora's, do you know how hard it is to do anything with horses when you got all this stuff tangling around your legs? And her uncle says, if you were not out here with the horses in men's pants and in the house like you're supposed to be, you wouldn't have that problem. And she's, no, I think I'll just wear the pants. (laughs) So she has a lot of challenges. 
Yeah. And I imagine out West, girls might wear split skirts or something like that. But probably in, in the Southern culture, that was bucking things a little bit more than they were comfortable with. Yeah. And Nora does that a lot. She tends to buck everything that she's supposed to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> she may have something in common with this feisty cult she's changed. Yes, she does. <laughs> <laughs> what do you love about writing about the Deep South? I love Southern hospitality. Oh, we have a lot of quirky little sayings. People say things like, bless your heart, and it's half compliment and half insult. We have a melting pot of culture, and things are kind of slower paced here. There's a lot of rural land. Life is a little quieter. We go fishing and ride four-wheelers and that kind of thing. And I feel like there's a sense of community and family here that I know certainly exists in other places, but I've always found that charming. And then, of course, besides that, there's the Southern soul food, and some of that cooking has always found its way into my books. Oh, I love that. What is your personal favorite Southern comfort food? Fried chicken. Fried chicken. Oh, a classic. Yeah. Oh, my husband, he's on, on special nights, he wants me to cook, and we get, I make all homemade from scratch, fried chicken, collard greens, peas and okra, cornbread, mac and cheese. <laughs> so that's our big Southern supper. It's his favorite. Oh, I love it. I love it. I, my mom did teach me how to cook, but I have never mastered the art of frying. My breading falls off and it just, I get grease everywhere and I'm just haven't gotten there yet. But yeah, that, that <laughs> makes my mouth water, man. That sounds really good. That's some good stuff. Were there any surprises with settings or characters that popped up while you were writing this story? One thing that I found surprising was my research. I was looking around for some of the training and things like that. And I found this book and it was called Gleason's Horse Training Manual. And I mentioned it in the story because it was very detailed. He talks about natural horsemanship methods. He talks about the horse's mentality and their te temperaments. The, the equipment and training styles. And I was really surprised because I, I guess I thought of that as more of a modern thing. We think about cowboys and breaking horses and they jump on their back until they're tired of bucking. And so that's what I had in mind. And I thought well, Nora's going to do all this different stuff. And so it shocked me that there was this giant thick manual in 1905 that actually I think came out in the 1890s that had all that kind of stuff in it. And I was really surprised by that. Wow. Yeah, I guess I do think of just, just like you said, the horse breakers for the cowboys who would jump on a horse and ride it till it was tired and do as many as they could in one day because it was just mass production, so to speak, of broken horses. But it makes me think of a farmer boy, actually, in the Laura Ingalls series, how Laura wrote about Almanza's father and his training methods that he was very particular that his colts like never be frightened when they were young because his goal was to gentle a horse rather than to yes. break a horse. That's the right terminology. Yeah, that natural horsemanship is the gentling and the bond that you have and creating trust so that they will do things with you and you do things with them and it's a partnership. Yeah, so it's not so much a demand, but it's a request and they're happy to do it for you. I don't know. Horses are such beautiful, graceful animals, but they're also huge. So yes, <laughs> it's complex working with them. Yeah, you can never be complacent with them. Even as much as I worked with them and stuff, you always I tell people, okay, simple things. Don't walk behind the horse and scare him. You're going to get kicked. It doesn't matter if he's your friend. Don't do that. 
Exactly. Don't scare him. He's a prey animal. He doesn't know that you're not sneaking up to eat him. Exactly. (laughs) Well, if I can sneak in a question about Silas, the blurb doesn't tell us a whole lot about him. Can you give us a peek into his character and his journey? Yeah, so Silas is living out in Texas. It's as far as his parents made it with their dreams to go out west, and they stayed there. And when Silas was young, they went and bought a colt, and they were bringing it back home. And something happened with his father, and his father died, and Silas never believed that it was an accident. And it was something that haunted him for a long time. And he did his best to take care of his mother and run their little struggling ranch they had until after his mother is gone. And he has decided that he is going to figure out what really happened to his father. And he follows those trails all the way into Mississippi and around to Nora. Oh, wow. So he's raised in Texas got and got that independent culture. But now that he has no one depending on him, he's ready to find out what happened. Yep. He wants to find out what all was going on there. And Silas and Nora are pretty funny because for everything that Nora is flashy and fiery, Silas is laid back and gentle. And he does all of that natural stuff of, you know, calm confidence. And so he's totally different than all the men that Nora is used to. So when it says Nora prefers horses to men, she's used to men who are really bossy and overbearing. And Silas is none of those things. And so it gives her a totally different perspective. Oh, wow. He just really kind of flips all of her presuppositions on their heads. Yes, he does. (laughs) Ah, Everyone needs someone in their life like that, right? Yeah, they do. They need a balanced person. Absolutely. Well, what are you working on next in your writing? Okay, so I have a book coming out in May from Ravel that I am really excited about called The Swindler's Daughter. And it's about a young woman who finds out that the father she thought was long dead has recently died in prison and has made her an unusual heiress. And so when Lillian goes to get this house in a backwoods Georgia town, she finds out that there's another woman living there who claims that this house is for her son Jonah. And as she tries to untangle all the mess, she discovers a family she never knew she had, a family business that is much more than it seems, and gets herself into quite a bit of trouble. Oh boy. Yeah, that sounds like an adventure. Yeah. So do you generally write standalones or or series? Both, actually. I have a couple of historical series, and then I've focused on just doing some standalones for the last ones that I've done. So I have both. Okay. Okay, cool. Just wondering if there were any characters from The Secrets of Ember Wild who would be migrating over to the other book, but No, it's going to be a standalone story. So it's set in Georgia and it's, yeah, I don't know how much more I can say. It's a lot of fun though. Nice, nice. No, as a Georgia girl myself, yeah, I think that sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty country out there. For our listeners, Stefina is offering a copy of The Secrets of Emberwild. To enter to win this giveaway, you can go to our website, historicalbookworm.com, and click on the giveaways tab. And you can also find a link to the giveaway in the show notes for this episode. Now, Stefina, where can our listeners learn more about you? 
You can find more about me at my website and it's stephinamcgee.com. I have all my books on there. I've got a reading checklist. I've got some cool stuff for book clubs and like questions that go with some of the books. And you can find me. I'm mostly on Facebook. I have a group on there that's called Stephina H. McGee's Faithful Readers Team. So if you want to join my readers team, that's usually where I hang out and I'll do things like polls for what do you think I should name this character and fun stuff like that. So I like to hang out in there. Nice. It has been so much fun talking with you about your new novel. And just thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me today. Now for a pinch of the past. With my oldest recently turning 16, we had... Oh my goodness, like three separate birthday parties for her. And 16 is such a special year. I think historically it's your coming out year. But needless to say, all of the planning has just taken up a little bit of my time. But I got to wondering, where does the tradition of birthday celebration come from? So here's a little history lesson on birthday. This sounds fun. I can't wait to get into this. It was fun. So in ancient Egypt, because so many things come start in ancient Egypt. (laughs) Don't they? Yeah. Egyptians actually celebrated the birthdays of what they considered their gods. So I'm like, wait a minute. How do you even do that? But take a step back. Once a pharaoh was coronated, he was considered deity. Thus, the date of his coronation is considered his birth as a little G god. Oh, that's fascinating. I never thought of that. So we actually have a biblical reference to one of the Pharaoh's birthdays in Genesis chapter 40, verse 20. The old King James says, and it came to pass the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast unto all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. This is the story of Joseph when he interprets the dreams of the chief butler and the baker. And unfortunately, the poor baker was hung and the butler was restored. That is so interesting because I just assumed it was his actual birthday, but that it might have been the celebration of his coronation because it was his birth as a god. I never knew that. That's really cool. Yeah. So speaking of bakers, German bakers began baking birthday cakes in the mid 18th centuries. However, according to historian Elizabeth Pleck, birthday parties did not become common even among wealthy Americans until the late 1830s. And just speaking of not even the big kind of birthday parties we see now, but family birthday parties. So I picked up a first-hand experience of a home birthday from Little House on the Prairie. Oh, our favorite. Laura says, after a while, I had a birthday. I didn't know anything about it until when I got up in the morning. Pa played spank me, one for each year. Then he gave me a little wooden man he had whittled out of a stick. Ma and Mary gave me a rag doll that Ma had made and Mary helped dress. And I was a great girl, four years old. Oh, wow. That's (laughs) so precious. That's so cute. I can just, oh, I can just see little Laura. I know. 
And peer cultured birthdays where children were included in the celebration of the birthday did not actually become common among wealthy Americans until the late probably 1930s. This is when in urban American public schools, you had ages that were actually associated with those grades. So typically when you were in a certain grade, the kids who were also in that grade were around the same age. Oh, because it had transitioned from being more of your grade had strictly to do with how much schooling you had already had to, you know, if you're eight, then it should be around third grade. Yeah. And this just reminded me of when I was a little girl, one of my friends from Sunday school, she always bragged about her grandpa who had grown up in California and he was invited to one of Shirley Temple's birthday parties. And she was just so proud of that. (laughs) Oh, I love it. That's a pretty cool thing for a kid to brag about, right? Yeah, and that's right that time period, too. You can Google pictures of Shirley Temple's birthday parties in like the, I think, the 30s, 40s area. And yeah, there are these pictures of some of them are big parties. I guess she invited everyone in the neighborhood, and that's how he got swept up in that. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, but going back to peer-centered birthday parties, we have another recount from Laura Ingalls Wilder, a time when she went to a friend's party. And in her true introverted fashion, she said she felt a little awkward. However, she did write a description of the party. And here that is, says the long dining table was set and ready when we got there. It was beautiful with its silver and china and beautiful linen tablecloths and napkins. At each place on a pretty little plate was an orange standing on end with the peel sliced in strips halfway down and curled back, making the orange look like a golden flower. I thought them the most beautiful thing I had ever seen, even prettier than the birthday cake in the center of the table. I remember reading about that scene, I think it's in Little Town on the Prairie, that she actually put in her book. But it's interesting to hear it in her first person account, where she's just casually sharing this as she writes it. Yeah. I like that. So now we'll take a look at the birthday song, Happy Birthday to You. The song is set to the melody of an older song called Good Morning to All, which was written by two teacher sisters named Mildred and Patty Hill. So they obviously had the tune of what Robert Coleman would turn into Happy Birthday to You, which he did that in 1924. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the Hill Sisters, they published theirs first and they did actually publish it in 1893. You can actually hear the song being sung in Dora's Dunking Donuts, 1933, Shirley Temple comedy musical short film, which I actually watched as a kid. And I was like, good morning to all to the tune of happy birthday. I know that song. (laughs) Oh, wow. That is so cool. It's interesting that the tune is that much older than the happy birthday lyrics. If I remember correctly, when it was in songbooks, it began being popularized. Good morning to all. And an alternative that they would put there in the songbook would be the lyrics to Happy Birthday to You. And I'm guessing just the demand itself, it just grew in popularity over time. That would make sense. If the original 
authors were teachers, they might have written the song for something for their class to sing together in the morning or something like that. But in actual culture, Happy Birthday to You is probably going to become more popular. Yeah. So I went ahead and I want to wrap this up. But an interesting fact about the song Happy Birthday to You is that it's technically still under copyright. I pulled this long excerpt out of an academic article called The Copyright and the World's Most Popular Song from GW Law Faculty Publications. And it says, when Justice Breyer protested Congress's 20-year extension of the term of copyright in his dissent in Eldred versus Ashcroft. He chose one song to emphasize what was, in his mind, the already overly generous protection of copyright law. He said, Happy Birthday to You, Melody first published in 1893, song copyrighted after litigation in 1935, the copyright of which is still in effect and currently owned by the subsidiary of AOL Time Warner. The example, even in that brief form, is a powerful one. Happy Birthday to You is a simple song that most people have learned by hearing it performed by family and friends and many probably assume that it is not under copyright at all. 1893 is a long time ago, 106 years before Eldred was decided. And for those who are unsympathetic to and suspicious of large corporations, AOL Time Warner, now just Time Warner, is one of the largest media and entertainment companies in the world. Wow. And they have acquired the copyright to the song. Yeah. That's fascinating. I had no clue it was still under copyright. You'd think that it would be public domain, but it's not. So, well, we won't be singing it here on the show, even though (laughs) we don't make any money or anything from the show. That might explain why in movies, when they show a birthday or something like that, they don't actually sing the quintessential happy birthday song because maybe they don't want to bother paying for the rights to sing it in their film. I don't know. Interesting. I wanted to close this out with a quote, and this one's from William Butler Yeats. It says, from our birthday until we die is but the twinkling of an eye. And as we're just passing my oldest 16th birthday, I have to agree. The time just goes so fast, and we definitely want to be grateful for those we have and love and birthdays that come and go because aging is a blessing. Time for our bookworm review. The Hidden Prince by Tessa Afshar. From the best-selling author of Jewel of the Nile comes the thrilling tale of a woman who feels she has no future, but soon discovers the fate of nations may rest in her hands. The beloved daughter of Jewish captives in Babylon, Karen is sold into Daniel's household to help her family survive. She becomes Daniel's most trusted scribe while taking lessons and swordsmanship training alongside Daniel's sons and their friend Jared. But after a tragic accident changes the course of her life, Karen finds herself in a foreign country charged with a mysterious task, teaching a shepherd boy how to become a lord. When she overhears whispers that hint at his true identity, she realizes she must protect him from the schemes of a a bloodthirsty king. 
Jared cannot forgive Karen. Still, he finds himself traveling over mountains to fetch her back to the safety of home. When he discovers the secret identity of Karen's pupil, Jared knows he must help protect him. Love battles bitterness as they flee from the king's agents, trying to save the boy who could one day deliver their people from captivity. This bookworm review is brought to you by Beth, a member of the Historical Bookworm Review team. I experienced The Hidden Prince by Tessa Afshar like a cool, refreshing glass of water on a hot day. The last page was the sip that quenched my thirst and left me completely satisfied. Karen's family is struggling to pay a debt, so a distantly related kinsman redeemer, Daniel, yes, Daniel from the Bible, takes her in to work for his family. Descriptions of Karen's life as a female scribe in service to Daniel are fully and delightfully realized. As the years pass, she grows closer to Daniel's family and is educated with his sons and their best friend, Jared. One thing I've come to expect and brace myself for, haha, in an Afshar novel is how her characters are put through the absolute worst thing imaginable. For Karen, this is hurting someone she loves so much so that she must leave her home and her family. Therein lies the catalyst for her wonderful character growth. I loved this reminder that God can and will make something beautiful from our biggest mistakes. Jared is another character that shows immense growth throughout the novel. His sections are narrated in third person, which I feel is a good way to distinguish between his and Karen's sections. The plot is smooth and nearly perfect. Each climactic scene is fraught with danger, tension, and intrigue. There is some lightly described violence as well as threats of violence related to the dangers of the time and setting. The descriptions of the Babylonian kingdom firmly placed me in the glittering and dangerous opulence of court, where citizens walked on the knife edge of a ruler's whim. The Hidden Prince is in my top five reads of this year, and I can't recommend it enough. If you love biblical fiction full of endearing characters, a tender, hard-won romance, and exciting journeys to distant kingdoms, The Hidden Prince is an absolute must-read for you. Hello, Darcy. What have you been up to? Not too much this week. I went to the thrift store and picked up... Okay, so this is funny. I love DIY projects. So I picked up a wooden silverware organizer that I'm going to sand down and repaint and hang on my wall as a shelf to display some granite chess pieces that I have. They were just... I actually found the chess set at the thrift store as well, but they're beautiful stone chess pieces. And I was like, these are too pretty to just throw in a box. I've got to find a shelf to display them. Not much, but I've got some fun craft projects going. So what are you up to these days? Oh, unfortunately, nothing having to do with antiquing and crafting. Did go to the Oregon Christian Writers one day fall conference. So that was a lot of fun just getting to chat with some of the authors there. I know Karen Barnett was there. She taught a really great class with another author class on uh what was it? Social media marketing. <laughs> and the, the speaker was Kate Braslin. She shared her testimony and just her writing journey. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. And it was kind of nice to just get away and actually do something, you know, moms don't really have a lot of me time, so to speak. So yeah, it was just a blessing. Yeah. I'm a little bit jealous. I think I have to go to a conference next year because <laughs> it's been a while and it's just so much fun to hang out with people who love the same things you do. So conferences can actually be kind of fun. 
Yes, Darcy, dearest. I'm sure that ACFW must have a chapter in your area. Maybe you could reach out with someone there. I should. I have not actually looked at the ACFW stuff much since I've moved, so I've been remiss. I need to do that. Yes, you should. And if any of our members go to your local ACFW chapter meetings in Northern Florida, maybe they'll reach out to you. That would be fun. That'd be really cool. (laughs) All right. Well, you have a wonderful evening. You too. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.